Differing Things is a podcast which focuses on how far religion and society have deviated from the Bible. Differing Things will cover many topics, both spiritual and current, to draw our listeners closer to their creator. Now for today's host, Bill Petrie. Gehenna, the word hell is given for in the New Testament, is rooted in an Old Testament location. It is generally regarded as derived from a valley nearby Jerusalem that originally belonged to a man named Hinnom. Scholars say the word is a transliteration of the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom, a valley that had a long history in the Old Testament, and all of it bad. Hence, Gehenna is a proper name like the Rio Grande Valley of Texas and New Mexico. This being true, the word should never have been translated hell, for as we will see, the two words have nothing in common. We first find Hinnom in Joshua chapter number 1 and verse 8, and then later on in chapter 18 and verse 16, where he is first mentioned in Joshua's layout of the lands of Judah and Benjamin. In 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 10, we find that righteous king Josiah defiled Topeth in the valley of the children of Hinnom, that no man might make his son or his daughter to pass through the fire to Moloch. Josiah, in his purification of the land of Judah, violated the idolatrous worship to the idol Moloch by tearing down the shrines. Topeth uh, it w- was a word meaning literally a place of burning. In 2 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 3, idolatrous king Ahaz burnt incense and his children in the fire there, as did idolatrous king Manasseh in 2 Chronicles chapter 33 and verse 6. And in Nehemiah 11, verse 30, we find some settling in Topeth after the restoration of the Jewish captives from Babylon. And in Jeremiah chapter 19, verses 2 and 6, Jeremiah prophesied calamity coming upon the idolatrous Jews there, calling it the Valley of Slaughter, because God was going to slaughter the Jews there using Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, And in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 32, Jeremiah prophesied destruction coming upon the idolatrous Jews of his day with these words. Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that it shall no more be called Tophat, nor the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter, for they shall burn in Tophat till there be no peace. Notice the mention of Tophat in the place of burning again. Isaiah also spoke of Tophat this way in Isaiah 30 verse 33, when he warned the pro-Egypt party among the Jews of a fiery judgment coming on them. In Jeremiah 19 verses 11 and 14, 
Jeremiah gave this pronouncement of judgment by Babylon on Jerusalem at the Valley of Hinnom. And the houses of Jerusalem and the houses of the kings of Judah shall be defiled as the place of Tophet, because of all the houses upon whose roofs they have burnt incense unto all the hosts of heaven, and have poured out drink offerings unto other gods. From these passages, we can see that to the Jews, the Valley of Hinnom, or Tophet, from which the New Testament concept of Gehenna arose, came to mean a place of burning, a valley of slaughter, and a place of calamitous, fiery judgment. Thus, Thayer, in his Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament, said concerning Gehenna, and I quote, Gehenna, the name of a valley on the south and east of Jerusalem, which was so called from the cries of the little children who were thrown into the fiery arms of Moloch, of an idol having the form of a bull. The Jews so abhorred the place after these horrible sacrifices had been abolished by King Josiah in 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 10, that they cast into it not only all manner of refuse, but even the dead bodies of animals and of unburied criminals who had been executed. And since fires were always needed to consume the dead bodies, that the air might not become tainted by the purification, it came to pass that the place was called Gehenna, end of quote. Actually, since Gehenna was a proper name of a valley, it would have been called Gehenna whether or not any idolatry, burning, or dumping of garbage had ever occurred there. And it did as we now see. Fudge said concerning the history of the Valley of Hinnom, and I quote, The valley bore this name at least as early as the writing of the book of Joshua. Though nothing is known of its origin, it was the site of child sacrifices to Moloch in the days of Ahaz and Manasseh. This earned it the name Topheth, a place to be spit on or aboard. This Topheth may have become a gigantic pyre for burning corpses in the days of Hezekiah after God slew 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in a night and saved Jerusalem. That was in Isaiah chapter 30, verses 31 through 33. In chapter 37 and verse 26, Jeremiah predicted that it would be filled to overflowing with Israelite corpses when God judged them for their sins. Josephus indicates that the same valley was heaped with dead bodies of the Jews following the Roman siege of Jerusalem about A.D. 69 and 70. Josiah desecrated the repugnant valley as part of his godly reform in 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 10, 
long before the time of Jesus, the Valley of Hinnom had become crusted over with connotations of whatever is condemned, useless, corrupt, and forever discarded. We read that from Edward William Fudge, The Fire That Consumes, on page 160. We need to keep this place in mind as we read Jesus' teaching, using a word referring back to this location in the Old Testament. Now, I want to talk about the 12 Gehenna passages in chronological order. First, we have Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22, Jesus used Gehenna for the first time in inspired speech. Ye have heard that it was said to them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of the hell of fire. Hell is the Greek word Gehenna, according to Strong's Greek Dictionary. As we mentioned earlier in this study, Jesus actually used the Greek word Gehenna for the first time in inspired writing in this passage. The word had never occurred in the Greek Old Testament to Septuagint. When we read the word hell, all kinds of sermon outlines, illustrations, and ideas come to the fore of our minds. None of these came to the minds of Jesus' listeners, for they had never heard the word before in inspired speech. It is very significant that the word did not occur even once in the Septuagint quoted by Jesus and his apostles. I suggest that to the Jews in Jesus' audience, Jesus' words referred merely to the valley southeast of Jerusalem in their Old Testament background. Gehenna meant a place of burning, a valley where rebellious Jews had been slaughtered before and would be again if they did not repent as Malachi, John the Baptist, and Jesus urged them to do. Jesus did not have to say what Gehenna was, as it was a well-known place to the people of that area. But his teaching was at least consistent with the national judgment announced by Malachi and John the Baptist. The closest fire in the context is in Matthew chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, where John announced imminent fiery judgment on the nation of Israel. Let us notice the other Gehenna passages so that we can ascertain more about Jesus' use of Gehenna. As we do so, 
let us analyze each passage. Does the passage teach things we do not believe about an unending fiery hell, but which fit national judgment in Gehenna? Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 through 30, is the next passage. Here, Jesus used Gehenna twice when he said, And if thy right hand, if thy right eye causes thee to stumble, pluck it out and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not thy whole body go into hell. The word for hell here is the word Gehenna. And if thy right hand causes thee to stumble, cut it off and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not thy whole body go into hell. And again, hell is the word for Gehenna. In our traditional idea of hell, unending fire after the end of time, we normally do not think of people having their physical limbs at that time. This is not an argument, but just the realization that we do not think in terms of some people being in heaven with missing eyes and limbs, and some in hell with all of theirs. However, these words do fit a national judgment. It would be better to go into the kingdom of the Messiah, missing some body part, rather than go to an imminent national judgment of unquenchable fire with all of our body parts. These were equivalent to John's demand that his Jewish audience brings forth fruits worthy of repentance or receive imminent, unquenchable fire. The whole body of a Jew could be cast into the valley of Gehenna in the fiery judgment of which John spoke. The fourth time Jesus used the word Gehenna was when he said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, And be not afraid of them that kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Again, the word hell is the word Gehenna. Again, Jesus spoke of Gehenna consistently with imminent national judgment on Israel. The whole body of a Jew would be cast into the imminent, fiery national judgment of which John spoke. In Luke 12, verses 4 and 5, we have the fifth time Jesus used the word Gehenna, when he said, And I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him, who after he hath killed, hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, 
fear him. The word rendered hell is once again the word Gehenna. Here, Jesus taught the same thing John taught in Matthew 3, verses 10 through 12, that only a divine being has the power to cast someone into unquenchable fire. A human can kill you. A divine being can imminently bring an unstoppable national judgment in which a divinely ordained religion would be brought to an end. Notice also that Jesus said that one would be cast into Gehenna after he has been killed in Luke chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, and that God can destroy both the soul and body in Gehenna. Notice also in verse 49 that Jesus said, I came to cast fire upon the earth, and what do I desire if it is already kindled? The fiery judgment of which Jesus spoke, was not far off in time and place, but imminent and earthly. In verse 56, Jesus noted that the judgment of which he spoke was imminent, for he said, Ye hypocrites, ye know how to interpret the face of the earth and the heaven, but how is it? that ye know not how to interpret this time. The word for earth in both these verses is gen, the standard word for land or ground, not necessarily the planet, which we might think. Thayer defined the word as one, arable land. Two, the ground, the earth, is a standing place. Three, land is opposed to sea or water. Four, the earth is a whole, the word. That comes from page 114 of his Greek dictionary. This is the word used in Matthew 2, verse 6, the land of Judea. Matthew 2.20, the land of Israel. Matthew 10.15, the land of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Matthew 11.24, the land of Sodom. And Matthew 14.34, the land of Gennesaret. And John 3.22, the land of Judea. And over and over again, it is spoken of in this manner. Jesus spoke of imminent fiery destruction on the land of Israel. Just as Malachi and John the Baptist said he would announce. Now the next passages would be Mark chapter 9 verses 43 and 40 through 45. And Matthew chapter 18, verse 9. These verses contain the sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth time 
that Jesus used the word Gehenna. These are verses like Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 through 30, which speak of it being better to enter life or the kingdom without some member of one's body rather than going into Gehenna with a whole body. However, we want to pay special attention to Mark's account because in it, <coughs> Jesus further described Gehenna. And if thy hand caused thee to stumble, cut it off. It is good for thee to enter into life maimed rather than having thy two hands to go into hell, into the unquenchable fire. Now again, the word hell is the word Gehenna. Now notice that Jesus specifically said what's coming in Gehenna, unquenchable fire. John the Baptist said he would baptize with unquenchable fire, not necessarily fire that would burn unendingly, but which would not be quenched. Unquenchable fire is unstoppable. Its fiery destruction brought about by a divine being. In Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 47 through 48, God promised such a national judgment on Judah. Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am about to kindle fire in you and it shall consume every green tree in you, as well as every dry tree. The blazing flame will not be quenched, and the whole surface from south to north will be burned by it. And the flesh will see that I, the Lord, have kindled it. It shall not be quenched. Of course, Babylon fulfilled these words in the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 586 B.C., when the Jews were carried off into captivity. The fire was not quenched, but Jerusalem did not burn unendingly from the year 586 B.C until now. Likewise, in Amos chapter 5, verse 6, God had promised a similar judgment on the northern kingdom at the hands of the Assyrians, which was fulfilled in the year 722 BC, when they were carried into captivity. Seek the Lord that ye may live, lest he break forth like a fire. O house of Joseph, and it consume with none to quench it for Bethel. The unquenchable fire which consumed Israel was unstoppable, but no one believes it is still burning unendingly. 
Thus, when Jesus spoke of unquenchable fire in Mark chapter 9, verse 43, he used language that his Jewish listeners would associate with the national judgments God had brought on nations in the Old Testament. In fact, they had never heard such language used any other way. Of course, we have, but not from the teaching of the Bible. We hear it from the pulpits of churches today through denominational bias trying to scare listeners into believing the way that the denominational bias would want them to believe. Matthew chapter 23 verse 15 is the tenth time that Jesus used the word Gehenna. He said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye can pass sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he is become so, ye made him twofold more a son of hell than yourselves. Once more, we see the word hell is the word Gehenna. These Jews knew what Gehenna was. And Jesus and John had foretold the unquenchable fiery judgment awaiting them there. He told these Jews that they were headed for it. And the people they taught were as well. It is the same national judgment he's been speaking of thus far. In Matthew chapter 23, verses, verse 33, which is 18 verses later than our prior usage, Jesus uses the word Gehenna for the 11th time. Continuing in the same address, he said, Ye serpents, ye offspring of vipers, how shall ye escape? The judgment of hell. Again, the word hell is the word Gehenna. And just three verses later, Jesus said in verse 36, Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. About these same things, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 34, Verily I say unto you, This generation shall not pass away till all these things be accomplished. Thus Jesus gave the time element when this fiery destruction on the land would be carried out in that generation in the time of his dealing with the then-present generation of Jews. To sum it up, Jesus threatened the Jews in the environs of Jerusalem that they were headed for the valley named Gehenna, where there would be unquenchable fire according to Mark 9.43 
upon his generation in Matthew 23, 36, in his generation in Matthew 24, 34, when God destroys the souls of those of Jesus's generation after killing their bodies in Luke 12, 5, in Matthew 10, verse 28. We cannot make it more precise. Gehenna is where Jesus said Jerusalem would end up after its unstoppable fiery destruction in 70 AD. James chapter 3, verse 6 is the last remaining occurrence of Gehenna in the Bible. It is the only time the word occurs outside the Gospels, where James, writing to Jews shortly before the destruction of Jerusalem, says this, In the tongue is a fire. The world of iniquity among our members is the tongue, which defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the wheel of nature, and is set on fire by Gehenna. It's James 3, 6. Well, this is the only passage speaking of Gehenna outside of the Gospels. It is consistent with how Jesus defined it. James condemned misuse of the tongue. Specifically in terms Jesus used the first time he used the word in Matthew 5.22, where he spoke of cursing one's brethren, putting one in danger of the Gehenna, or hell, of fire. In James 3.9, James said, Therewith bless we the Lord and Father, and therewith curse we men, who are made after the likeness of God. Out of the same mouth cometh forth blessing, and cursing. Thus, the last time Gehenna occurs in the Bible, it taught the same thing it taught in the first. The Jews of Jesus' day, who abused his brother with his tongue, was in danger of imminent, fiery, national destruction. He was headed for unquenchable fire on his generation, in his generation. We see the same imminence of this judgment against Jesus' generation of Jews later on in James. For example, in chapter 5, verse 5, Jesus mentioned a day of slaughter coming. In James 5, 7, he mentioned the coming of the Lord. In James 5.8, he said the coming of the Lord was at hand. In James 5.9, he said the judge stands before the door. From these 12 Gehenna passages, we learn that Gehenna would be the familiar valley on the southwest side of Jerusalem, where an imminent fiery judgment was coming on the Jews of the generation in which Jesus was crucified. 
It was unquenchable fire on that generation, in that generation. It was a national judgment against the Jews. Gehenna was to the Jews of Jesus' day what it was to the Jews of Jeremiah's day, where the term originated, the city dump. But it entailed all the horror of being rejected and abandoned by God to the merciless enemy who surrounded the gates and who would cause their dead carcasses to be thrown into the burning, worm-infested place. Thus, when Jesus used the term, he used it in the same sense that Jeremiah did. As Jerusalem then was abandoned to Babylon's invasion, so Jerusalem of Jesus' day was about to be abandoned to Roman invasion, unless they repented. None of these hell passages say that anyone of our day can go to hell. None of them associate hell with Satan. None of them say that Satan's domain is hell. Though they speak of men being killed and destroyed in Gehenna, none of them speak of men being tormented there. Contrast Jesus' use of hell with traditional preaching on the subject. For example, I quote Reverend J. Furness, who said, and I'm quoting, See, on the middle of that red-hot floor stands a girl. She looks about 16 years old. Her feet are bare. Listen, she speaks. I have been standing on this red-hot floor for years. Look at my burnt and bleeding feet. Let me go off this burning floor for one moment. The fifth dragon is the red-hot oven. The little child is in the red-hot oven. Hear how it screams to come out. See how it turns and twists itself about in the fire. It beats its head against the roof of the oven. It stamps its little feet on the floor. God was very good to this little child. Very likely, God saw it would get worse and worse and would never repent. And so, it would have to be punished most severely in hell. So God, in his mercy, called it out of the world in early childhood. That quote comes from J. Furness in his work, The Sight of Hell, cited by Edward William Fudge in a book called The Fire That Consumes, from page 416. Charles H. Spurgeon, a renowned preacher, said, and I quote, When thou diest, thy soul will be tormented alone. That will be a hell. For it, but at the day of judgment, thy body will join thy soul, and thou wilt have twin hells. Body and soul shall be together. 
each brimful of pain, thy soul sweating in its innermost pore drops of blood, and thy body from head to foot suffused with agony, conscience, judgment, memory, all tortured, thine heart beating high with fever, thy pulse rattling at an enormous rate in agony, thy limbs cracking like the martyrs in the fire, and yet unburnt. They shall put in a vessel of hot oil, pained, yet coming out undestroyed, all thy veins becoming a road for that hot feet of pain to travel on, every nerve a string on which the devil shall ever play his diabolical tune. Fictions, sir. Again I say, they are no fictions, but solid, stern truth. <laughs> if God be true, and this Bible be true, what I have said is the truth, and you will find it one day to be so. That's from Charles H. Spurgeon, sermon number 66, cited by Wilton. Edward William Fudge in his book, The Fire That Consumes. And then, need I mention, Jonathan Edwards, the famous Calvinist preacher of an earlier century, who gave perhaps one of the most horrific messages ever the message of a sinner in the hands of an angry God? Did all that preaching come from the 12 Gehenna passages that we've looked at and analyzed? Did any of it? We can find none of this language of red-hot floors, dungeons, red-hot ovens, vessels of hot oil, being able to see the throne of God, brick kilns, torture racks, chains, or great furnaces anywhere in these 12 passages that deal with the subject of Gehenna in the Bible. However, they are found in Milton's Paradise Lost, in Dante's Inferno, the listener may wonder if Jesus did not teach that the wicked presently living finally goes to hell, and then what did he teach about the final destiny of the wicked? <clears throat> First, we do not have to know the answer to that question to know that traditional teaching on hell is biblically bankrupt. Second, Jesus did not teach anything about the final destiny of the wicked, that is, at the end of time. If we're tempted to use the account of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16, let us recall that in this account, Lazarus, the rich man, and Abraham were all in Hades, not Gehenna. They could not be seen. And the passage does not address what happens after the end of time at all? 
Whatever the passage teaches, it does not deal with the final destiny of the wicked. False theories of eternal punishment of the wicked have done unfathomable damage in the religious realm. Untold millions of people have obeyed God purely out of fear of a false concept of a man-made religion that infused within it a doctrine of torture and torment called hell. Other untold millions have turned their backs on God because of a false sense of hell, as described by Roman Catholic sources and their followers who happen to be in every single denomination. This study shows that when John the Baptist and Jesus used these terms, they used language familiar to the Jews whom they taught. The Jews had heard this language no other way than in scenes of national judgment. While it is easy for us to read these passages from the point of view of enduring conscious punishment, we need to read them as the Jews who heard them first read them and heard them. Rather than our present-day beliefs about hell coming from the Bible, our beliefs really came from Roman Catholic theologians. As a result of an earlier version of this material, many have asked, what is the final destiny of the wicked? The final destiny of the wicked is this that Jesus Christ died for their sins, according to the scriptures. And he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. Jesus Christ says that he is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. I ask you, can a man be a Savior? If he does not save, is that possible? The ultimate destiny of God's creation is that ultimately all of God's creation will one day be restored and brought back into a union with God Himself. This is the victory of what Jesus Christ won on that cross when he became the offering for sin. We thank God for such a Savior. What a wonderful God we have. What a wonderful Savior we do have. And I want to close this study with some words that the Apostle Paul gives to us in his epistle to the Corinthians. He states in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting here at verse 22, and I'm going to read down through verse 28. For as an atom all die, 
even so in Christ shall all be made alive. <clears throat> but every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Afterward, they that are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, so that God may be all in all. What a fantastic passage. In Adam all die, in Christ all are made alive. So that God may be all in all. That, my friends, is the total victory of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Good day and God bless. We want to thank you for listening to this week's Differing Things podcast. If you would like to get more information about the Bible, please check out our website, www.beacon-ministries.org. Do not forget to join us next week for a new Differing Things podcast.